You are now listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast, where the worlds of sports medicine and performance collide. My name is Mike Quintins. I'm a physical therapist with an entrepreneurial mindset that specializes in treating orthopedic and sports injuries. I'm bringing on the brightest and sharpest in the field of sports medicine to share their best practices and explore the gap where medicine meets performance. What's happening, Performance Therapy Nation? This is your host of the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast, Mike Quintins. Today, I'm joined by Don Gullick, professor, entrepreneur, and research leader in the field of physical therapy as it applies to sports medicine. Today, we will be discussing the landscape of getting into PT school, what PT school consists of, Dawn's experiences in the field of sports medicine, and her mobile app called iOrtho, as well as a new, new device on the market as of Monday, the Mobile Aider. Uh, and I, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. I know Dawn's really excited about this, this new product, uh, as am I. Uh, so just a, a little bit more information about Dawn here. Dawn earned her Bachelor of Science in Athletic Training from Lock Haven University, her Master of Physical Therapy from Emory University, and Doctorate of Philosophy and Exercise Physiology from Temple University. Dawn is also a certified athletic trainer and certified strength conditioning specialist. Dawn is a professor of physical therapy at the Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania, with over 25 years of teaching experience. As a clinician, Dawn has owned two private orthopedic sports medicine practices. She also provides athletic training services from the middle school to the elite Olympic, Paralympic level. As a member of the USA sports team, Dawn has provided medical coverage at numerous national and international events and has been the medical provider for the USA national teams since 1993. Dawn is the author of four books. Uh, Dawn's a developer of the mobile app called iOrtho Plus, which we discussed earlier. The app has been positively reviewed by numerous organizations and has been adopted by dozens of universities to supplement their orthopedic curriculum. It's sold in over 14 countries. Dawn is also the inventor of an orthopedic device called the Mobile Aider, and uh, it has been cleared by the FDA and was launched less than one week ago. So, Dawn, w- welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. So, uh, some background here. So, Dawn, uh, probably... No, no, no. Uh, you don't need to go there. No, I, ha- I have to. Uh, so, uh, and I'm proud to say this. Dawn is a professor of mine. I went to, uh, like I said, the Widener University, and uh, Dawn's been a, a mentor. Uh, any move I've made professionally, and even personally, I've ran through, uh, ran past Dawn, and... Um, and a, a critic, but like with the critic you want. So uh, we've had plenty of conversations. We've done research together, and it's um, it's an honor and a privilege to have you on here, Dawn. So thanks for joining. It's it's been a fun experience, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so l- let's get let's get into this. So w- what is your role at, at Widener University? You know, I'm professor of physical therapy. Um, my uh, my role is filled fulfilled the three areas that every professor has to do: right, teaching, service, and scholarship. All right, so. Um, how many seats are, or um, how many spots are available in at, at Widener University each year? Yeah, typically we um, we admit about fifty, and um, you know that the students start in the summer with anatomy and go through a three year curriculum. Okay, and so from there, uh, who are these students, right? Like, where do they co- where do they come from? Um, you know, the fair amount come from this area, the Philadelphia Tri County area, but we bring a lot in from other areas as well. You know, it's a pretty diverse kind of class. Widener offers a three plus three program and a four plus three program, which affords students the opportunity to get a seat in the program guaranteed if they maintain a, a given GPA. And so with that, it attracts from within house as well. You know, to be a smart consumer, you you want to control your own destiny. So the, the bottom line is, if you know that you want to do the, a particular career, then by all means, you know, determine your own fate. Don't put it in the hands of an admission committee to read who you are from a piece of paper to try to decide whether or not you're a fit or not. How was that? How was the, the application process changed for you? I, when I applied, yeah. just some background from my time at Widener, it, I believe it was all through PTCAS uh, mm-hmm. to take the GREs. Those were looked at, but there was no, there was no interview. I don't believe at the time, at least has anything changed essay? Like has anything changed? Yeah, no, it's always changing. It's always being reevaluated. Um, there's thought that, you know, we're going to find that pinnacle you know, characteristics that's going to define you as a physical therapist and define who you're going to be and, and be successful. And we, we haven't found it. No program has. And anybody who tells you they have isn't giving you the truth about the situation because, you know, your, your GPA 
a three five from one university is not a three five from another university. Fair. You're not comparing apples with apples. A, a recommendation from one person is different from another person. You know, we get recommendations from people that say, you know, this person arrived on time and and dressed, you know, professionally and and was nice to the patients. Okay, those are really wonderful attributes, but that doesn't make you successful in the PT curriculum. So, you know, those span the gamut. And I think I'm happy you, you brought up recommendations and how you how you assess, uh, you know, accepting students, really. Um, what, what's the most challenging part of that process, in your opinion? Because, I mean, you, you, there's only 50 seats. And, and how many applications are, you know, do you guys consider for how many spots? Yeah, um, the, the numbers are pretty high. And, and the, you know, it's it's hard to figure out who that right student is. We've added interviews a few years ago with the idea that maybe we could achieve a better a better fit. And, you know, there are people that are just like in sports. There are people that are great practice players and there's people that are gamers, right? And, and so you get to an interview and you get the people who were great practice players and now they're in the game and they're climbing up. And then you get the people who are the gamers who just, you know, can put themselves on a pedestal at an interview and you don't know who you're seeing there, you know. And how do you decipher that, right? We could spend, right. you know, years trying to analyze and, right. you know, determine grit and things like that. That, Like, I'll be honest, my GPA in PT school was higher than my GPA in high school. Mm-hmm. It was higher than my GPA in undergrad. I was interested in the material I was learning. Right. Uh, so I may have been one of the last ones into the program, but I thoroughly enjoyed learning the content in class, you know. So. Yeah, it's a tough environment, and it's really hard to find those attributes that make you successful. And the things I look for when I talk to somebody, you know, I'm looking for their passion. I'm looking for their maturity and, and their ability to problem solve. And you bring up the word grit, and I'm very familiar with Angela Duckworth's there you go. work. And, and I, you know, she, she uses the idea of, um, you know, what have you done for more than two years of your life, right? She, yeah. Tell me something that you've done that, that long that you're passionate about. I love the analogy. Have you read the book? I have. Yeah, um, the, the one love about her work. the treadmill one. Yep. The treadmill, yeah. right? If I get on a, tre- if you and I get on a treadmill, one of two things is going to happen, right? <laughs> yep. You're going to fall off, or I'm going to die. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's just like that's that's the kind of person you want because right. you need somebody, especially in the healthcare arena, who's going to be an advocate for the patients. You know, you can yep. be nice, you can be sweet, and and you can be caring, but if if you're not willing to do what has to be done to get that person a wheelchair or an assisted device or set up their home care, you know, or, or be tenacious about this, whatever their needs are. You're not going to be successful and your patients aren't going to benefit. The same thing goes in the workplace. Exactly. I, I, when I'm interviewing people, I, you know, everyone's got a CSCS now. Mm-hmm. Uh, before they even graduate PT school, they have the CSCS. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at resumes and, that, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I look at the affiliations Mm-hmm. To see if I know who the this clinical instructors are or who, what what clinics they were at. Aside from that, I really don't read into it too much because it's what you want them to know about you. Yeah. Okay. Of course, it's going to look fantastic, right? Um, I, I'm sure some look better than others, but to me, it, there are certain questions in an interview that I need to ask to really understand how bought on, how bought in is this patient mm-hmm. or patient this 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 candidate, uh, and um, and how hungry are they and passionate are mm-hmm. they to learn? I. I've had, I'm sure you know this too. You've had um, personalities are are, super, are very important, and ability to communicate is very important. You can teach them everything else, but if they have all the intangibles that that you're looking for in terms of a willingness to learn and maturity, right? Then uh, you can take care of the rest. You'll teach them. Oh sure, I've seen people with you know three eight GPAs and have hands like bricks, and you're like, <laughs> oh my goodness, this is going to be so hard to to do. I mean, the psychomotor skills are really challenging. And teaching someone how to do that is is really difficult if, if they just don't intuitively have that. And a, a paper resume or a paper application or even an interview doesn't show you that kind of stuff. Yeah, well said. So, well, uh, I mean, I, you know, just to cut to the chase, you know, on anybody who's looking to go into PT school, please do not write a resume that tells me, Grandpa had a stroke and you watched their rehab and now you want to be just like that wonderful physical therapist that gave grandpa back their life. Yes, that's a wonderful story. And I feel bad that grandpa had a stroke and that you had to go through that. But that doesn't make you a good physical therapist because that's what you saw. Like you've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to figure out that this is what you want to do. Watching somebody else do something doesn't make you good at it. And and until you actually get your hands dirty, work as an aide, do some some volunteer hours to really see what it's like, 
you're going to invest a whole lot of time and money into something that you may not enjoy. What information do you feel like, uh, in addition to that, do you feel like is important for prospective students who are maybe an undergrad right now and considering physical therapy? Is there any additional information that you feel like they should have uh, on hand before even applying? Like, like what boxes need to be checked? You said volunteering. Yeah, there's volunteer hours. That's really important. Okay. And in diverse environments. Because when you go to PT school, you don't come out being an orthopedic physical therapist. You don't come out being a cardiovascular specialist. You come out as a generalist. And so I see this all the time. You know, students come in and say, well, this is what I want to do. And they try to blow off like a section of the curriculum. It's like, no, you've got to pass these classes and you've got to pass your boards. So you, you, can't, you can't pigeonhole yourself too quickly. You've got to be open. Um, you probably won't want to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. What se- what separates Widener from any other program in the region? And there's, I mean, there's great ones uh, in this area. Absolutely. What, what separates Widener? You know, um, what I'm, what I am happy about in the environment is that everybody is still treating, right? So ev- everyone in our department is still seeing patients, and you're not getting the curriculum taught by adjuncts or by TAs, you know, graduate assistants. It's being taught by faculty who are still in the field. And I think that's important because it's the only way you can stay on top of your game. And, and so that, that's an important value to me. I'm going to take it a step further, and I don't, maybe, I don't think you're going this direction, but I am. Uh, there are schools <laughs> who are ranked top five, ten, whatever, nationally ranked, and students see that and they say, I want to go there. And they're ranked. Do you know how they're ranked? Yeah. How are they ranked? Yeah. They're ranked by surveys about what people know about those schools. And they're not ranked back on, based on performance. So they're really, it's just not objective data. It is all subjective. And that's unfortunate because people are making a life decision based on that. To me, it comes down to fit, uh, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Uh, what is best for, uh, as again, as a prospective student, what's best for your ability to attend class regularly, right? To be engaged, spend extra hours there. There were times I was in the lab, like a lot of students have gone through Widener and other PT schools where you're, you're, you're in the lab until nine, 10 o'clock at oh, night, yeah. just working on, you know, material for practical. So research is important because I know a lot, there's a lot of emphasis on that and no one knows better than you how important it is. But I, I would rather learn from someone who's currently treating or knows what it's like to be in the field mm-hmm. than someone who's great at publishing research. That's, mm-hmm. That's my two cents. Uh, it's, it's important. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. No, but, I, I totally agree with you. There's, and there's a balance in everything in life, right? And I'm not one to always tell you that I'm good at that. But, but it, it is true that, you know, that's something that we should be striving for. So well, At Widener, what do you guys do to assure that the physical therapist, that the PT student who's about to be a PT is ready for the, work, uh, the workforce? It all comes down to competency-based curriculum. You know, you have to have certain didactic elements that you have to achieve, and you have to have certain you know, psychomotor skills. And, and that's obviously, as you know, having come back and been a lab examiner mm-hmm. and stuff like that, you have to make sure that they can fulfill the criteria. And, and so having, you know, solid rubrics that are tried and true to be able to assess their, their abilities objectively. And, and I think that's really important. And, and, you know, we've talked before about how it's just hard sometimes to tell a student that they're they're not doing well and they're, they're not going to be able to progress in the curriculum or stuff like that. But, but it, it is part of our job is to ensure competence uh, of those individuals, both for the profession and the safety of the public. But then ultimately we're releasing those students into clinical rotations with clinicians like you who are out there treating. And if we give you somebody who's not competent, that's a huge risk for you. Sure. So, you know, we have, we have to do our job on the front end and then you put the icing on the cake on the back end. Well said. Uh, I, I mean, as clinicians, we have an obligation that when a student uh, is is present or is doing an affiliation, and just for you listeners out there that aren't familiar with affiliations, they're essentially like residencies, uh, except you're not getting paid for for physicians. Right. So they have to treat these pay, these students have to treat a percentage of their clinical instructor's caseload and deemed competent in, in treating that percentage of the caseload to graduate that course, so to speak, and move on in the curriculum. So they, they are treating patients with supervision by the end before they even graduate. They need to be able to do that full caseload without supervision. Correct. Right? Am I missing anything a- on that? Entry level competence. You're right. Exactly. And yep. to me, that is, that's different. And I don't think when I tell a, a patient will call and say, who, like, who do you have me working with? I'm like, well, it's uh, Allie, who's, uh, you know, from, from Chris Wise, you know, uh, you gave me a call and said, hey, I got a stud for you. And uh, she's a new grad. I get asked that question. Well, how long has she been out of school? Well, she just graduated a few months ago. Well, I'm, I'm not working with a new grad. 
And I and okay, I understand that. But let me tell you a little bit more about what she had to go through to get to this point. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so I think that gets overlooked. In fact, I like having new grads around because a they're moldable; they're not stuck in their ways yeah. uh, wherever they were working at before. And the other component is they know they know the the latest research out. They may be spending more yeah. time in the books and getting the latest research out in their curriculum than than I may have access to. Uh huh. You know, I think there's um there was a study that was done a long time ago that was. Um, or not, not a study, a mockery of studies that was published in the in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and they're known for their sarcasm. That's where the parachute study came in. Have you heard that one? I've I've, I've heard of the parachute study, not yeah. much more than it's, that. Though. It's do we really? It, it's a mockery. It's making a mockery of research. It's basically saying, do you really need a study about parachutes with a control group to prove that they work? <laughs> right. I, I mean, so it, it's sure. kind of making a mockery of the idea that yeah. you know, isn't anecdotal data also important? But that being aside, um, they did this uh, kind of algorithm one day that said, if you read X number of studies for not Y number of years, you would still be Z number of years behind. And and their point was, you just can't possibly have a job, have a life, and keep up on all the literature. So to your point, you know, when you've got a situation where you've got students who have just been taught cutting edge information, because that's my job. Yep. That is what I'm paid to do, yep. is to stay on top of that literature. And I, I use mobile apps to do that. You know, QXMD Read sends yep. me emails every day on the latest literature on certain topic areas that I want. And I'll read those those abstracts to decide what literature I want to pull. I'm constantly reading and, and I'm to. staying on top of that. But then I filter that down to the students who then get that out to you. And, and that helps. I mean, this should not be a one-way street. When a CI takes a student, a clinical instructor takes a student, it should not be the CI teaching the student all the time. That student should be given something back. Thank you for saying that. Because I, I say it all the time. I, if you ask me what I'm doing, I'll explain to you what I'm doing. What, what are your thoughts on that? What What do you like to do? Mm-hmm. What, have you been taught anything different? I all the time. Right. I, I I know I don't know everything. And right. there's and there's cutting edge, you know, education going on out there that I'm I'm not privy to. Uh, oh. So so to me, I I want I want to learn. If I mean that's we signed up for that. Right. So well, a wise person knows that the more they learn, the more they realize how much they don't know. Right. Well said. I, it, yeah. Yeah. What do you make of virtual schools, virtual PT schools? PT's not a virtual profession. I'm sorry. I know that's very succinct and rather, but it's, I mean, you know. I, I don't disagree. I, I mean, it's fine. I, I don't have any problem with doing some courses virtually. Didactic courses can be delivered in a classroom as well as virtually, and that's fine. But but you've got, you've got to have at least a hybrid element to it. I mean, right. I've been so grateful that we've we worked through all this, through all the COVID stuff, and we've been in the classroom all the way through. We have had labs, and we've worked things out, and we've not had a single COVID case in, in our Kudos. curriculum. And, and awesome. so it's, you know, it's it's been good that way. I mean, nothing that has been linked back to the university. There's been outside stuff, but, sure. but that's, you know, that stuff happens. But, but yeah, the, um, the, you know, we've been very careful. And, and the bottom line is we're training healthcare practitioners. So you need to learn how to deal with this stuff. It seems to me that uh, I'm hearing this more and more. I know Baylor has one of these programs and there's a couple other programs out there, but it's an accelerated two and a half years uh, and everything's accelerated. Now I, I did the old school four plus three. Heck, yeah. I, I, we don't have to get into <laughs> what you had to do, but it's uh, it, it is interesting now that the hybrid two plus, two, you know, or two and a half year PT programs that will do months virtual. And then you will go for, you know, a two week or a one week, uh, it hands-on intensive lab covering the material that you reviewed. Um, and a lot of schools do that. I mean, yeah. there's, there's been, you know, schools that have been trying that for years, weekend programs and, and stuff like that. And, right. and, and I, I think that everyone has different learning styles and there are some people that can do well in that environment, but from a pedagogical perspective, you, you can't just back the dump truck up on somebody and just unload everything on them at once and expect them to retain that. It's got to be fed in pieces. There's, there's, I mean, we've learned this for years about there being a readiness to learn and, and you've got to, you got to feed these things forward. You take two steps forward and you take one step step backwards, two forward, one back and you build, you know, it just, it just can't be a dump truck. I'll wrap up this section of the the podcast with uh, this one memory I have of Dawn. And this is a good memory. There's a lot of them, but this is, this is a, a great one. I remember my, one of my first, might've been the first day. I remember you telling the class that you guys have all been high performers. That's why you're here right now. 
uh, here's the expectation. You don't you don't get less than an eighty, uh, and that's not even good enough. But that's that's passing. So a, a passing grade is an eighty or better. To, at least that's what I remember. Mm-hmm. And then I remember you also saying that when you were in PT school, you never looked at your grades. Oh my you, gosh, I can't believe you remember that. Oh, I, the, 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 I remember. <laughs> Holy I remember crap. a lot of things you said, but I, I remember I, you saying you didn't look at your right. grades, and I was like, wait, what? But I, I'm so happy, and now that probably resonates more with me now than ever, because we can't be so results-driven mm-hmm. and, and uh, in a time where everything is about the results, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when you put in the work, uh, no one told you you failed. <laughs> you didn't. Yeah. No one told you how to retake anything or that you're out of the program. So you continued to go to class, and you knew that you passed. Yeah. So uh, I, I truly didn't, and, and because, you know, I, I felt like I was in an adult learning model, I was there to learn and I, and you know, if you, if that's the point, then, then I can learn something from getting something wrong on a test. I can learn something from getting feedback in a practical and that's fine. I, I don't need a grade to reinforce that for me. Yeah, or val- validate that, you know, you, you, yeah. it was adequate. Um, yeah. I remember people being, people being upset over a 93 or a 92 and I was like, I, yeah. I, I pass. I'm gonna do the best I can. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get hung up over a, a ninety three versus a ninety eight. That's the yeah. difference, you know. So right. no, it's it's about being a lifelong learner and you have to subscribe to that. And if you don't, then you really are picking the wrong profession. You know, go do something I'm I i do not know. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of professions out there. You know, the Pythagorean theory hasn't changed in years. You know, you can do math calculations. I don't know, but but, but whatever, you know. So it just seems to me like you, you have to embrace that. Yeah, and, I, and I've taken that from you and I, you know, uh, that, that hasn't gone away. So awesome. All right. So I want to move on to the next part. Uh, I want to get into, so Dawn, you are so unique in that you, you have so many different plates spinning at once uh, I, I, <laughs> and they do come crashing down on my head on occasion I, I, believe me not, not, i've never seen it uh so have your experiences molded your perspectives as you know a certified athletic trainer you have your atc how how's your perspective of the fields of pt and athletic training like how have your experiences molded like your perspective of those two fields like any profession there's turf wars right and and i hate when that happens because there's enough for all of us to go around. And I think that PT and ATU is such a wonderful merger. And I wish I could tell you that I was so insightful that I saw that happening. And it wasn't, it, you know, uh, sometimes things just happen serendipitously, but I think that I've been able to merge them successfully and I've enjoyed both aspects of it. Is there any information you feel like it would be important for the naive PT, naive, probably not the right word, but the um, blind to what ATCs do or, or what ATs do or what PT and vice versa, right? So I, in my opinion, there are times where I think we can generalize or stereotype as PTs, and I'm sure it's done both ways. And sure. the same goes, I've had this conversation with a chiropractor who, heck, uh, the rented space in an office that I, that I ran for a little bit and how there's, you know, these, these turf wars, so to speak. Is there any information given your experiences that you feel like, I, I think it's important for PTs to know this or ATs to know this? You know, I mean, I think you just hit the nail on the head right there is, is walk in their shoes, go hang out with them, go talk to them. You know, I mean, why not? Why, why not learn more about them to, to know them? And that's everything. I mean, that's just not professions. That's anything that makes someone different from you. Go make an attempt to learn more about it so that you can appreciate where they're coming from. And, and people that, that try to argue over turf wars will say, you know, well, well PT shouldn't be doing that or AT shouldn't be doing that. Well, do you really know what their education is? Do you really know what, what they've learned? And if you don't, then you really haven't made an educated decision. So, you know, that's what I think is, is the most important part. And I've done things, you know, in the Olympic arena where I've worked with people that are ATs, people that are PTs, DOs, MDs, chiropractors, right? I've worked with all of them and, and we all just have a respect for what we do. And I don't have any problem with, you know, saying to somebody, hey, what do you think about this? Or, you know, I've just evaluated this person, but what do you think? And, you know, and, and we all learn from each other. But we, I think we have to put our preconceived notions away sometimes uh, and, and ask with respect, mm-hmm. what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Or why? I, I think we can't be afraid to ask why. Also, with that being said, I can't be, I can't be offended when someone asks me why. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> right? I mean, if you can't just, I say it all the time, if you can't justify a technique you're doing in the clinic or why you're doing that exercise, I shouldn't be doing it. Exactly. You know, you probably taught me that. So, uh, you know, kudos. Um, But that's, I'm happy we we touched base on that uh, Mm -hmm. because I think that's, 
we all got to get along and work together. Um, okay. So how does it feel the sports medicine change over the years, and, and what do you believe will continue to change? Uh, do you like the direction it's going? How it's changed? Um, it, it's science-based. It has become so much more science-based. Sports medicine, people, practitioners, as well as the athletes are analyzing sport. They are breaking it down into a science, and, they're, and they are just capturing what has to be done to make them better. And so everything from, goodness, all, all the monitoring capabilities, right, uh, that you can do now with performance, it's just impressive. And, and that's, that's changed so much. And, and that's really cool to see. It's, it's improving performance, too. I mean, right. it, 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 you see, I mean, heck, the Olympics are going on right now, and we see some, some of the results, like the 400-meter men's hurdles shatter the world record. Like, there's just, that's across the board. You're seeing world records all the time. Mm-hmm. So, well, that goes both ways, too. And you have to true. think about, you think about it's not just, it's not just the physical performance. It's also the environment performance. I mean, you look at the pools they're building, the tracks they're building, right? Like this, the track that, that the, in Tokyo supposedly has a lot more spring to it. Mm. That's eating performance. There, there have been some studies that have actually looked at you know, going back to remember those gravel tracks that your high schools sure. had, right? You look at running on something like that versus running on what they're running in t- Tokyo. Clearly, there's going to be differences. So there's there's big equipment issues too, but that all goes back to the science. Yeah, the, yeah, I, you're right. The analytics. I mean, uh, different types of watches or just uh, you know monitoring tools. Right. Uh, and the other thing, everything you're right is science driven. So we, you and I have talked about blood flow restriction, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, but it's all data. Related in, in rightfully, I mean, that's kind of, that's what we believe in, right? That's what we signed up for. We're not doing a technique because my CI 10 years ago told me this would help this patient, you know, right. but why? Well, and blood flow restriction is a great example because that is something that has evolved. It started with one population for which, you know, it, it was going to be deemed appropriate for and, and it's evolved. And, and now there's a lot more people that are benefiting from Cardiopulmonary it. patients. Exactly. I, I said, uh, I was at a CSM, uh, in uh, Colorado and on the panel was, uh, I'm going to forget, I forget this guy's name. Uh, he helped Alex Smith recover from his, his leg injury, but the college, uh, an NFL football player, mm-hmm. but on the panel next one were two cardiologists mm-hmm. and they're talking about how blood flow restriction consistently across the board helps their patients improve their function. Mm-hmm. Like it went from hypertrophy and, and strength to right. help, helping cardiopulmonary patients, which you would think, wait, you're going to restrict their blood flow. Right. Well, intuitively, you would think that restricting their blood flow would cause blood clots, but just the opposite happens because of the releasing factors that occur that actually create systemic reduction in blood clots. And so that's where the science comes in. So what you think happens intuitively, if you truly study it, you find, oh my gosh, that's not it at all. Isn't that cool? Like, look what we just learned. And that's a constant process. This is a wonderful perspective. I'm not sure I would have heard the same responses from other people and asking the direction of sports medicine. I think some people would talk business and how that may be changing over, you know, in the past, but you're right. The science behind sports medicine has changed so much that the techniques have changed, mm-hmm. you know, from you know PRP and prolotherapy and all these other conservative measures that are out there. And even sur- surgical techniques right. have changed. Uh, I remember you uh, were always an advocate of going to the journal club in the city with the, that was virtual three B's. Oh yeah, but, I mean, well, now they're virtual, but they, virtual, yeah. they they weren't before. Yeah. Right, and I remember we would go there, and it was all. I mean, a lot of it was about surgical techniques, and it was cool. I mean, you're seeing the brightest minds in Philadelphia, you know, on stage talking about, and the people in, in the seats too. And it would get heated sometimes. It was great mm-hmm. uh, talking about the research articles that they were reviewing. I wouldn't what a privilege to you know to be able to even be present for those. So, now nah, you're right. The research is so different, and the techniques are improving. So, yeah. well, well said. How can the fields of physical therapy uh, and and athletic training work better together? I, I feel like it goes back to communication, but you know, and and hanging around each other. But what are, what are your thoughts? Is there anything that you feel like is kind of outside the box? Uh, you know, I I don't have any earth-shattering revelations there. To be honest with you, it's it's just really again, I think it comes back to respecting each other's disciplines and being able to work together. You know, for the best, the benefit of the patient. I mean, that's what it all comes down to. This isn't this isn't an ego trip. I would love for PT students, um, I shouldn't say required, but I don't know, it, to, to, uh, to shadow, to shadow an AT, you know, shadow, whether it's, whether it's Duff or whether it's, it's Sun Valley's AT or a different high school in the area, mm-hmm. just hang out with him for a day. In fact, like help him mm-hmm. or her, you know, yeah. help, help the AT for the day. Yeah. Uh, we, we do that in the sports elective, but that's only a, 
small portion. It's not, you know, the whole class. That's sure. just an elective situation. That's a fair, that's, but, a, that's a good yeah. point. But even that's better than, you know, I think that's a, that, that would be awesome. I, mm-hmm. I, I never got an opportunity to do that. I mean, we had the opportunity to shadow podiatrists and, mm-hmm. and other talks, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I think that's, that's a good idea to spend more time. Yeah, you know, I, I always open that door to the students because I'm still on the field. I mean, I'll be on the field this weekend. I'm covering baseball all weekend. And, um, and, you know, I'll be on the field, and that's fun. I mean, I still love it. But it, it is a different perspective. I mean, what you prioritize in your eval on, on a field versus what you prioritize in the clinic, very different kind of um, decision-making process. And sometimes you got to make some pretty quick decisions, whether somebody's still in or, or, or you need to get them off the field. Right. And, um, you know, those are those are valuable things for you to be able to see that decision-making process. It's easy to sit, to be at home on your couch watching Sunday football and saying, <laughs> did they see that? that? That guy's back on the field. Uh-huh. Someone upstairs has to tell them, uh-huh. go stand in their shoes yeah. and, and see what it's like when you see these, these mammoth men moving this quickly or women in other sports moving this quickly. And you, everyone else saw a replay on, uh-huh. on TV, but it's happening live. You got to make a split, you know, split second decision. It's not easy. I've had that happen on the field hockey field. I was, I was on the sideline and I, I, I saw an athlete tear her ACL. I, I saw it. It was right in front of me. It was mm-hmm. so obvious. And another player ran into her after that. The coach on the team wanted that player to get a red card and be ejected from the game. And I was like, no, you don't understand. That person tore her ACL before she got hit. It wasn't the hit that did that. I saw that. It was right in front of me. I said, somebody needs to go back and look at that film. Not now, but later. And you'll see that. I said, that was, that was not the hit that caused that. The player hit her because she went down and she didn't expect her to go down. She expected her to keep running. And so she shouldn't have been there, you know, um, sure. and there was a collision. So you see injuries happening and, and that's part of, and, and you know, as you've been involving in your profession and in your practice here, that, that um, that's what begins making that transition to an expert clinician is being able to draw on those experiences to be able to make that assessment in the moment. Amen. Well said. Uh, lifelong learner uh, and teacher. So you're an author of four books. What's motivated you to do that? (laughs) It it was weird. Um, Okay, so when I was in PT school, I had a three-by-five black little black book. And honestly, it's still in my desk drawer. (laughs) I'm not surprised. I swear it still is. (laughs) I, I actually, well, so this goes probably back about 20 years or so now. But I was asked by Margaret Biblis at F.A. Davis to review a textbook. And so the textbook was written, and she asked me to review it. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, holy crap, this is my little black book. This is my book that I had in the day. I'm going to date myself, but in the day, that was our white lab coats. And my little black book fit in my lab coat pocket. And that was with me all the time in the clinic. And I'm like, this was my resource. And somebody just wrote this. And I'm like, son of a gun. I wish I had had the, you know, the forethought to do this. And so I'm having this conversation with Margaret and she's like, yeah, that's interesting. So do you want to do an ortho one? And I was like, she set you up. Okay. Uh, all right. Like maybe, I don't know. Never wrote a book before. Right. Um, and that became ortho notes. And we're now on our fourth edition in a ridiculous number of languages. I don't even know. Every time they do another language, they send me some copies and I keep saying to them, why are you doing this? I can't read any of these. <laughs> They're in like, you know, Turkish and Chinese and Korean and, Okay, that's nice, right? Um, I got one one time in Italian, and we had a lab instructor come in, and I'm like, I can't believe they just like sent me this thing in Italian. He's like, I speak Italian, give me that. I'm like, okay, it's yours, right? Was there any motivation in it uh, in, in terms of how you did it? Maybe not necessarily why, but how you did it that uh, was conducive to your learning? Because I've noticed that about yeah. uh, about iOrtho is that to me it's very like I don't know, it's just easy for me to interpret and read. It's very like bullet point. You know, you yeah. know to, to me, it's just, I don't know, visually makes sense to me. It's not all, like, textbooks I can't stand because it's all paragraphs. And uh-huh. I, just, I just, my brain doesn't do well with a bunch of paragraphs. I hear so. you. I hear you. And, and, you know, it's funny because things like color, color pops for me. Um, it, it is. It's a very individual learning style, and it's probably pretty selfish from, from that perspective. But we've gotten good feedback on it, so we continue to do it. <laughs> I, I think it's done pretty well. Um, <laughs> even, even, like, even when we went on and did sports notes, we, we contacted Mueller, and we got a dozen different colors of tape. And when we were doing taping techniques, we did every tape strip with a different color so that you could see the layering of the tape, one on top of the other. So it was the sequencing. I feel bad if somebody's colorblind, they're not going to be able to benefit from any of that. But, but nonetheless, um, that was the, the method of the madness. And, um, and yeah, so that went on to, 
so sports notes and screening notes. And then, uh, Dr. Chris Wise and I yep. did mobilization notes together. Yeah. And, um, and then it was funny. I mean, students challenge you just, and we've talked about that in the past, how students ask really good questions and you think sometimes, gosh, why didn't I think of that? Like that was, that was a really smart question. And it goes back to the research study we talked about a while ago with, um, you know, joint replacements and, you know, can, can you do ultrasound on a joint replacement? Right. Yeah. And we end up putting a joint replacement in a pig to be able to figure <laughs> that out. And that was the most awesome thing. I remember you told me, you told us that, uh, that might've been the first week. I, mean, I think it was intervention, interventions, uh, modalities was the, one of the first courses I, I took at Widener yeah. in that fall. And I remember you talking about a hip replacement going into a pig. And the reason was, is that the, the properties of the skin of the pig I, yeah. if I, are very similar to that of human being. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore you would, you would be able to assess what, you know, potential harm you're doing to yeah. a pig with a hip replacement right. compared to a human being with a, a hip replacement. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was a cool study. We had a lot of fun with that. And the guys learned a ton with the group that I worked with and they got to actually do the surgery with the orthopedic surgeon. And, you know, I still had that, that pig's hip in my office. Oh, God. <laughs> I still do. It's awesome. Oh, but, um, but no, awesome. that was, you know, that was fun stuff. But, you know, those are the kind of cool things that you have the opportunity to explore. And, and I think if you just put yourself out there enough and, and, you know, so to that end, I just want to say something about Please. that because, so I used to say 15, 20 years ago, I used to say, when somebody say, how'd you get to go to the Olympics? How'd you get to do all this Olympic stuff? Right. And I used to say, ah, ah you know, you get lucky. Right. And I realized what a disservice I was doing it, because I was basically saying that by virtue of just existing, you're going to get breaks in life and be able to do really cool things. And that's not true at all. Right. I worked my butt off. I, I showed up when other people were too tired to stay. I stayed longer when other people went out and got something to eat. You know, I put myself out there time in and time out for no pay to just learn and to, and to get exposure. And that ended up connecting me with other people. And, 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 you know, those relationships built to the point where you get, okay, so we need somebody to do such and such. And you get asked because you're there. You said to me once, I had an idea and God bless your soul for actually listening to this idea. But I said, uh, I, I, I want to try and do something about concussions. And I, you know, some, I see mouthpieces out there that uh, don't use the word concussion, but they say that they reduce shock and, mm -hmm. or they absorb shock and et cetera. And how can I do that? Yeah. <laughs> you actually, God bless it. I look back like, man, you were like, well, where am I going to go with this one? Like, uh, but you know what you said to me and not, you came to that realization before you told me this, cause this is, was a phenomenal answer. I said all the time, like you can't get what you don't ask for. Mm -hmm. I remember you said that thing. I was like, Holy smokes. Mm -hmm. That is, I, that, I say it to this day at least once a week. Mm -hmm. Can't get what you don't ask for. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you have to ask for something outlandish, but like you gave me a couple of resources to get in touch with mm -hmm. and to see if this is something I could get off the ground. Yeah. And it, and unfortunately never did, but nonetheless, I took that, I took that a message from you and I, I apply it all the time. Can't get what I don't ask for. You know, just because you have a good idea doesn't mean there's a need. And that's, and that's yeah. always a tough thing with something, you know, when you start to develop stuff, you know, and, and, and I've learned a ton in the past three years with the grant that I've gotten from National Science Foundation and, and the customer discovery process and trying to, to figure out what's the pain point, right? Yep. If, if someone doesn't realize they have a pain point, then they don't need something to fix it. Well so, said. Yep. You know, so, so what are you trying to do? Just because you can make it doesn't mean you should. You have to kind of figure out what, what are the needs. And, I mean, there's a lot of really smart people out there making some really smart stuff. But sometimes the simple stuff is what really is the game changer. You know, you've been able to do a lot of research. I want to know, in, in your opinion, what is most often overlooked by, you know, clinicians that give up on research? Like, like, like what, why, does, why does it not get done? Because they don't take the first step. They're afraid, right? You can't, you can't run a marathon without the first step, right? That's pretty cliche, but, but, yeah. the, but the reality is that if, you're, if you are so, so afraid of taking that first step, then you're, ne you're never going to get anything done. I mean, you've got you've to get out of your comfort zone. If, you, if you're in your comfort zone, then you're not taking a risk. You're not taking a risk. You're not going to do anything great. And, and that's just, I mean, so what? You fail. So what? Right? I mean, as long as nobody dies, in the grand scheme of things, sure. so what? Right? You learn a ton from your failures. And I, I've made plenty of mistakes in my life. But I, my, my goal is not to make the same one twice. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. What research project are you most proud of? 
the pig study was a good one, and that was a lot of fun. But I I'd honestly have to say to you, and again, this is going to sound really corny, but I've done two research projects with my daughter. We have worked with um, Brian Hennessy sure. on the belt squat yep. unit. And um, actually, one of your colleagues, Jim Pagnani, yeah. has been, was involved in the very first one we did. I, and I was at that. Yeah. That's where Jim and I had actually met in person. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, was, um, that was a cool study. And it's been, it's been fun to publish with my daughter. So, yeah. What were the results of the study? Do you, do you remember? Oh, yeah. They, they were the, the max squat. Squat max. I'm sorry. Squat yeah. max. Um, actually did a really good job at particularly engaging the extensors and abductors, which are huge components for ACL prevention. Yeah. In, in a closed chain fashion nonetheless, right? Yeah. So that, that, that's what you, and the weight was, is distributed below the, the body weight, right? Well, below the to, pelvis, right? Below the pelvis, so so your lumbar spine's not loaded. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As opposed to back squat, which we're, I'm, we're seeing now, I pay attention to the strength conditioning world uh, a ton, obviously. And this is, that's something you're, you're seeing back squat tossed out. You're seeing deadlift, straight bar deadlift tossed out. It's interesting to see that you, you'll see more front squat or hex bar deadlift, mm -hmm. but almost like back squat and, and uh, straight bar deadlift are almost, you know, it's just the, the load and the position of the load. It's just not advantageous to uh, preservation of the spine. Or anything well, and as we can get more sophisticated in things like, uh, you know, EMG analysis and, and being able to see exactly which muscles are loaded, and then we can actually target certain muscles with that, that specific activity. It makes a whole lot more sense. Again, going back to the science, right? So what, what muscles do you want to target for being specific at or being successful at your sport? Well, then train them the same way. Specificity training. Yeah, I, I, we did. We did a study together. Actually, a couple of them. Actually, we did the um, Graston uh, instrument assist soft tissue mobilization mm -hmm. to uh, tolerance to pressure following uh, the gra performing the technique uh, on on the upper trap. And we had oh, I forget the name of the machine, but essentially it assesses the amount of force you apply. It's a dolorimeter. A dolorimeter. That's, yeah. That was my job to pre to use that. Yeah. But we had ideas, and you're like, all right, what do you guys want to do? And we presented different ideas. You're like, all right, let's do yeah. it. I'm like, wait. You're, like this is your world, and you're just it's, gonna listen to cool. us, kids. And we and we did it. Sure, it, it, it was, that's cool stuff. Oh, it was awesome. It was cool. So I have um, an, I have another study I want to do with that. It's really cool. I got to figure out how to figure how to do it though. I will do it's, it off the air. Oh, you want? Okay, you want? Oh no, it's all. It's, I want I want to, I want to be able to figure <laughs> out how we can measure the pressure that's being distributed through an instrument assisted tool, because then we can measure if we can measure angles. Angles can be measured easily with accelerometers. Sure. We got to figure out the pressure on a force gauge, how we can do that as we're doing delivering the technique. And then we can actually determine the depth of that we can get to with the tissue. What's a hand, handheld dynamometer do? Yeah, that measures force, but they're too big. We there's much smaller force gauges. I, I would think we would have to find With all this stuff that I've been doing right now, I have a lot of access to engineers. So I pick their brain all the go. time. Yeah. See, oh, yeah. See, uh, working smarter, not harder. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I pick their brains. <laughs> yeah, I would think there's a way you could be able to get, you know, a very small surface area applied to a certain uh, part of the tissue and be able to identify oh, how oh, much yeah. force you're applying. And it would be cool if it was on a, you know, a gauge, just like your device here, uh -huh. and, and give you that feedback. Oh, yeah. Because, again, inter-rater reliability. Uh, am I it. doing the same thing, especially in a world where PTs treat the same patients, right? Right. So uh, am I applying the same amount of force that, uh, my fellow PT was. Or if I, if I know that I know the tissue I want to target, I know its depth, then what angle do I hold the device at in order to get to that depth? I mean, that's all the stuff that we need to know to be most efficacious with our treatments. Oh, I love it. This is great. I, I miss this. We got to do this more often, Dawn. <laughs> all right. So I, I really want to get into it. So, so what's really cool, uh, not only are you a professor, not only have you uh, ran, owned, and managed, and treated in practices, not only do you, are you on the field this weekend, but you also are an entrepreneur. And, and I... And uh, I don't know, I feel like that's probably one of the things I am most amazed about everything that you do, that you also, you're like the five tool player, you can do it all. So I, w I want to know about, first tell me about the app, the iOrtho app, and, and then I want to get into this, this device. So uh, for our listeners and a, a lot of PTs that are practicing know about the, you know, the iOrtho Plus, can you, can you share, us, you know, share with us a little bit about that? So um, a number of years ago, um, Chris Wise and I were teaching orthopedics together and Students came to us and said, uh, hey, can you give us a review sheet for the test coming up? And we created an outline of the, the orthopedic tests we expected them to learn. And they're like, you know, that'd be really, you know, it's really helpful, but could like, you put some pictures next to it so we know what each of the techniques looks like? Oh, yeah, I, I had all that stuff already prepared. It wasn't a big deal to put it onto a, a study guide for them. And then it became, oh, you know, that'd be really nice if we had that laminated because we could take it out into the clinic with us. And it's like, all right, yeah, 
real needy group here, right? But, but you know, the questions were good and, and, and they were just advocating for themselves. And like you said, if you don't ask, you don't get, right? Yeah. So, um, so, okay, we made these like laminated sheets and we started, you know, making them kind of nice and pretty and we were able to market some of them as we call them quick notes. We still have them and we still sell them. And then it became, you know, well, could you put this on our phone? You know, this was, the, this was 2010 when mobile apps were just coming out. And um, I was like, yeah, well, sorry, you got me there. I don't know how to do that. And literally I was, that was um, in the fall semester. And in February, I went to CSM and I was there. I was talking with a friend of mine at a booth and I'm like, yeah, you know, we just had this conversation. Students want us to actually do this. So we put this stuff on a mobile app and we can do this. And he's like, oh, I know a programmer that's near you. And I bet you they could do that for you. And I'm like, no, come on. Well, that was February. And by June, we had the mobile app developed. It, it was pretty wild. Chris and I learned a ton. I had the utmost respect for Chris Wise. He's a really bright guy, a lot of fun to work with. And so we, we did that. And then over the years, we've continued to evolve it. And, uh, you know, it's now went actually in fe- this past February, we went from a one-time purchase thing. We now went to a subscription model. Love it. And uh, yeah, so we continue to do that. And I, I just, you know, just got a, an order today from a university, you know, for the fall semester for their students. They use that as part of the orthopedic curriculum. And we get, we get that fairly regularly. So that's kind of nice. So, so what information does it, does it have? Oh, we have 450 orthopedic tests. Okay, so, and, 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 and what does it walk you through the technique of the test? Yeah, so you, you pull up the, the screen and uh, you pick the joint you want, and then from there you pick the part of the body, like a, a part, the, the structure within the joint. Yep. So you can decide whether you want to look at ligaments or muscles or tendons, and it breaks it down, and then it, it keeps drilling out further and further. And as you drill out, you get to a specific test. So you might go shoulder, and you go rotator cuff, then you go supraspinatus, then you go lateral job empty can, whatever, you know, right. of the supersonics. And then within that muscle or within that test, there's a picture, there's a video, there's a written synopsis of the test that's pretty succinct. There's the statistics that go behind it. What's the sensitivity, specificity, positive, negative likelihood ratios. There's even clustering, like so combinations of two tests. And then, uh, and then the literature. And we have actually direct links to a lot of articles, over 1,300 articles. That's what we're seeing out now more than ever, at least in my opinion, are these clusters of essentially if four of these five are positive. You are, or exactly. you should either perform this technique or it's right. Or it's one of those things where it's, yeah, that's a most likely diagnosis or refer out for an x-ray or an image, you know, right. some type of imaging. So it's, it's, a, it's a tool to allow a physical therapy, physical therapists in the field to be as accurate and precise as possible when it comes to diagnosing or doing what's best for the, the person in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, that's phenomenal. I, I recommend everyone uh, get in on that. And I love that you guys are doing a subscription because it's something that you're, you're constantly updating, mm-hmm. right? Cause research is coming out, especially clusters. I mean, there's, you know, if, if the research supports it, why aren't we doing it? We can't just put all our weight into, you know, the lateral drope test being positive or negative. Right. Right. So. And no, and, and no time would one test ever be the diagnostic sure. tool. And, and that actually rang, nothing rang tr- more true to me than when I was developing this device because I had a conversation with the FDA and the FDA, FDA said to me, do you want to be a class one or a class two device? I, I've learned I've, I, you answer a question with a question, right? Why would I want one over the other? Well, if you're class two, you can say you're a diagnostic tool, um, but you're going to be held to this level of standard, but you can say you're a diagnostic tool. That, that can be one of your claims. But if you are happy being a measurement tool, then you could be a class one. You won't be held to the same rigor in terms of clinical trials, but you would, a measurement tool. And I'm like, I'm a measurement tool. That's what I am anyway, because no single test that you ever do with this device is going to be a diagnosis. Like that's just foolish as a clinician to ever think that that one test is a be all or end all. I'm so happy you said that. Uh, how many patients all the time? Should I get an MRI? Is that going to tell me what's really going on? It's a piece of the puzzle. You know, even if you walk in with the MRI, it's a Mm -hmm. piece of the puzzle. It has to support what we're finding in the clinic when we're doing we're doing our diagnostic test, right. uh, and 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 good for good for you saying that because I feel like the attraction would be like oh this thing is that accurate and that precise it's going to be able to to diagnose something, and it it's, is it, it, it is that accurate and that precise but I'm not going to say that it, because because here's the bottom line right you looked at MRIs right MRIs yep. it's a snapshot sure it is a static image it tells you nothing about how you perform function non weight bearing static image right exactly <laughs> yeah, right. so we know there's people that have acl tears that are copers sure we know people that have chronic ankle sprains right that they have aberrant movements and and that doesn't show up on mri yep 
I said, you know, that, that's we need we need things that are going to give us dynamic performance because that's what happens when we move. And there's not too many tools, and we're seeing more of them out. Uh, so a lot of them are actually uh, digital in some ways, mm-hmm. but this is different because this is supportive of what we do with our hands in the clinic. So tell me more about how uh, this is used clinically yeah. and by PTs and by physicians. Yeah, so, um, so what we attempted to do was to create custom molded pieces that would conform to the various contours of the body. Over the years of the development, I took orthoplast and I started custom molding joints. And I would get people of different body builds and I would mold their joints and then I would trim them up and then I would try them on a lot of other people. And so now maybe I've got four very different body builds and I would trim them up and then I would go try them on a lot of other people and figure out, okay, this one seems to be the best fit for the most number of people. And then we made parts that conform just like that. This piece, ironically, is this is for a wrist yep. to do a wrist mobilization. Mm-hmm. And this piece was actually a big piece that came up like this. And I had, um, I had a woman in Florida who had one of the demo devices and she called me and she said, you know, there's a problem with this wrist device because when I put it on, on some people, it extends further out on the side. And now it's really hard for me to wrap my hands around because the device actually stops me. I said, okay, can you give me a wrist measurement of the person that you're talking about and what your hand span is? She, she gave it to me. I took the piece into my basement. I got out the, the, the saw and I took a jigsaw and I cut it out, right? And I, I went and I sanded it all down. This was before it was all molded up and it was just a 3D printed, or a, uh, yeah, 3D printed piece. And I, um, I sanded all the edges. I put it in a box and I mailed it to her in Florida. And I said, does that work? And she's like, that's awesome. This is great. I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> Move on. Uh, next piece. But, you know, we, we did that with a lot of pieces and, and that is how, you know, they got contoured over the time. It's all the customer discovery process. You've got to listen to people who are using the device to make a device that's functional. And that goes for, for how we practice as physical therapists, right? Yeah. I mean, how can I customize a program for somebody if I don't know what their goals are, right? Right. And the same thing goes with this. So what does it, what does it assess? What information does it give you? It measures linear translation of a joint. Okay. And so yeah. basically the, right, the arthrokinematics of a joint. So two bones gliding on each other that we know as joint mobilization techniques, but those are also used to assess joint laxity. Right. And, right, and why is joint laxity a, a problem? I know that's a silly uh, question, but... Uh, well, because we can look at an MRI. I'll tell you, here's our preliminary data. Yep. Six people, no difference right knee, left knee with linear translation. MRI, perfectly fine. One millimeter difference between right and left. MRI, perfectly fine. Four to 4.9 millimeters difference. We got four people that measured between four and 4.9 millimeters. MRI, all shown they're torn. So... We can actually pick up that clinical, you know, um, defect, if you will, before we even see the MRI. Like, we'll know that based on how that, that leg moves, how it translates. Yeah, that, that may even be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you're ahead of you or you're probably like, no kidding, Mike. But this can be used as a tool to determine if an MRI or exposure to, to more different types of radiation is even appropriate, right? So is it even appropriate or, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm reaching right, Here's my dream. Yeah, go ahead. Here's my dream. Because we need to be more efficient. Uh, my dream is that no surgeon will ever be allowed to do an ACL replacement unless they have more than four millimeters of translation on a mobilator device. Everybody has to have one and you have to report that value before the insurance company approves the surgery. And, and why is that? Well, because, because I think that we need to see dynamically what ha- is happening. Is it possible that the surgery may not be indicated? Yeah. Okay. I mean, could they be rehabbed if it was less? Sure. Can can you tell if someone has two millimeters difference on the other side? Right. I can't. I can't. No. I, I, and I think that if anybody tells you they can, then they just, either they're a whole lot better than I am or they're well, not I, being very, very truthful. What's nice now is we have a tool that can put that to the test. Yeah, <laughs> and, and there's been a tool, right? The KT2000 used sure. to be out. It went off the market in 2012. But it was this monstrosity of a device yeah. that fit in a roller bag. I can, I can put this thing in a tiny little box that you can take out on the field. Well, if, and you've, you've used it on me, uh, on my knee. And it, I mean, it's a, it's a forceful device that isn't, I don't remember it being like with this tool, like you can work into, you know, end range. Right. That was boom. Like it was yeah. like a force. It was a thrusting was maneuver. A thrusting yeah. maneuver. And then whatever the calculation was, it, you know, would come up. But this is different in that this not only assesses laxity, but it also offers feedback to clinicians 
right on on how much uh, force they're applying through a joint. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, sure. Well, it's not force. It's again millimeters of motion, but right, right. because force is going to be different sure. based on a person's strength. But but also um, the idea that that you can have objective data, right? We've all been as medical providers. We've been certified in CPR for you know, our entire careers, right? Every two years you get recertified and you get on one of those mannequins and you push down on the chest and you hear click, 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 click. The most primitive of feedback. You know that you're doing that compression correctly because you heard a click. It's that simple. Learning is about being taught a task, performing the task, being made aware of your errors and correcting those errors. Well, if you're not aware of your errors, how can you correct them? Yeah, there, and feedback's a, critical there. Uh, without a doubt. And, and, Clinically, obviously, like, you know, in the real world, so to speak, but also in the classroom. Oh, yeah. In, in the classroom, are you seeing this being used in the classroom or are you guys using it in the classroom when you're teaching joint mobilizations? We did, and, and it was fun because um, this, this summer we used it in orthopedics. And so if, if I go and I take these pieces, mm -hmm. right, and I put this on for the knee, yep. it's real simple. They just, everything just kind of clicks in to the spaces. But, but when you put this on someone's knee and then you do this translation, with the device and you see an actual reading on here, right? I've had students who get on the leg and they're grabbing the whole leg and they're trying to do this. And they're like, well, it's not reading anything. It's like, that's right. Because the motion of a Lachman's test is a linear translation. You're doing a rotatory motion. That's not correct. So they immediately have feedback. Oh, okay. Wrap your hand under more. Now pull straight up. You're not, you're not torquing this, you're pulling straight up. Oh, okay. So now they just immediately saw that they've got a number and now they know they did the technique correctly. Yeah, and, and not a dependence on the tool to perform the technique per se, right? I mean, so it's offering feedback on how to teach or instruct the technique right. in a linear fashion in this case. Exactly. But that's all, and that's yeah, that's really cool because you're not creating a dependency on it either. But what a great tool to have to learn how to, am I applying the forces in the right direction? Well, and it's, you're not that far removed that you don't remember spending lots of time in the lab at night practicing with your, your colleagues oh, yeah. who, where, where you don't have a faculty member there. You don't have a clinical instructor there, right? And you're practicing and it's the blind leading the blind. Oh, sure. Right, because you, neither one of you really know what you're doing and you're trying to learn and you're trying to learn together, but you're not, still not really sure if you're right. But if you have something that can give you feedback to know I'm doing this correctly, it's a whole different ballgame. And it accelerates the learning so much faster. Yeah, and it's tough to get feedback, even as like I, I was the kid without the ACL, so everyone did everyone did the Lockman <laughs> test on me and, and, uh, and drawer test and everything else. And I remember, you know, being like, ah, yeah, it just doesn't feel like you're gripping as much. I, you know, it's tough mm -hmm. to get feedback, right? Yeah. So like more with the force and listen, some are great at it, but when you're li blind leading the blind, that's, yeah. that's a perfect example. So, uh, no, well said. What direction do you see this going? Like, what the, with with this tool? I mean, I, I can think of so many you know applications for it. Like you've already, we've already talked about a bunch of them. Yeah. What direction do you do you see this going? Do you feel like this is? I mean, you can bill for it, right? We talked about that earlier. Yeah. So earlier. a nine seven seven five zero code um, will get you reimbursed for physical performance test because it is a quantifiable value. So you can generate a report with it, and and that's a, that's a, a great return on investment. So yeah, I mean, I'd like to see, I'd like to see this in academic environments. I'd like to see people really using the device to, to make orthopedics what we know it should be, which is a perfect, a precise, you know, science. We we've used our tagline, you know, orthopedics is about precision. Patients demand it, and the mobilator can perform. So that's that's kind of what we we want to see it be able to do. And you know, we have some ideas about maybe whether we can develop a version that can go into the operating room and be able to test pre and post-op. And so we're going down that road. I'm again, making myself uncomfortable, but <laughs> you know, it's, we're, we're, uh, we're seeing where that'll go. I think you can go a lot of different directions with that. I mean, for, for laxity of the shoulder, mm -hmm. ACL reconstructions, Heck, manipulation uh, of of a knee joint afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. Re reassessing that, that we actually get more laxity. Is there more laxity in the actual joint now after we cranked on it? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you can go so many at the ankles. Uh, you know, there's just so much, so many different directions you can go with this. In you know, from a surgical perspective, well, even my, even the literature, right? Like ACL right. reconstructions, mm -hmm. we 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 always want to rehab those closed chain because the literature has shown. Uh, little bit of an increase in shear forces with um, open chain activities. Sure. But if we have a device that can actually measure the laxity of the ACL, 
what's to stop us from kind of pushing that envelope a little bit and seeing, okay, if, if we add some open chain activities, are we getting any more laxity? And if not, why not keep doing it? And this goes back to, you know, the Tennessee accelerated ACL program sure. protocol, right? Three, where, three months. Yeah. Right. Where, where, you know, you, you find out what you can do. What are your limits? And we've all seen that. We've seen patients that are not compliant, right? And you tell them what to you tell them you want them to do X number of exercises and they do X times X and they come back and they're doing pretty well. You're like, wow, you know, maybe I'm not dosing them high enough. Maybe I can push harder. Maybe I can do more. And we learn from that. And, and that helps us to grow and that helps the next patient get better faster. Well said. I, I know I'm dealing with more appeals and insurance roadblocks now than I ever have. Not that I've been practicing forever, but I don't remember ever having, hearing about uh, authorizations and appeals and you know, we're dependent on the data that we use, which as you taught me how to, how to uh, you know, gather that data. Uh, not all of it, if we can perform it in clusters, then maybe it's more reliable, but it's very difficult for some of that data to be reliable. This is something that I can demonstrate. There's been a change here, or there was a pre-existing issue before that ACL walked, walked in here when I, you know, when we did the laxity test, mm -hmm. that's what I'm up against in rehabilitating this knee. So we can't compare this to your average ACL that's walked in the door or mm -hmm. that, that you're saying is, is on the table right now because there's an increase in laxity relative to the, to the other side. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think this is an outpatient just, you know, in my world, I think it's uh, incredibly applicable and we can bill for it. How about it? What else do you have to add about it? You know, it's, it's get, still a work in progress. This we, is version one. We already have version two in the works, you know, with some upgrades that we're, we're thinking about. And, you know, I, I've been very, very fortunate. This has been funded by the National Science Foundation. There was a period of time where I wrote 19 grants in about two and a half years. Uh, it was, um, I always just felt like I was a grant writing machine, but, you know, not all of them were big ones. I mean, there were some of them were just a couple thousand, 5,000, 10,000 but they got me another version of a 3D printed, you know, prototype. They got me the next iteration of, of some of the molds. Everything was a step forward. And um, I've been fortunate enough to get, you know, 14 of 19 of the grants that I've written. And I, I've learned a ton that's about a, the process. That's well, a but I learned, I learned how to write. Yeah, right. I learned how to write for a grant, right? It's different than writing for a journal. And, and so all of that. It just speaks volumes to, you know, when in Rome, you have to do with the Romans, right? Like you, have, you have to write to the people that are your audience. And when those grant writers of NIH and National Science Foundation aren't medical providers, you have to make sure that you meet them where they are. And you do that every day with your patients, right? You meet yeah. them where they are because that's where you're going to have the most success in communicating with them. And, and that's what makes grant writing successful. This is, this has been uh, awesome. This has been amazing. I, my takeaway, uh, a lot of takeaways, but my biggest one is the profession of physical therapy amongst many others, uh, especially medicine, is it's a lifelong dedication to learning uh, and making yourself, uh, putting yourself in uncomfortable positions, you know, when it's easier to be, to be comfortable. So, uh, and, and that, that's what you've done here. You know, you talk about, you know, the grants and, and learning how to write grants, like constantly everything. I learned, I learned, I learned. Yeah. I didn't, it wasn't always easy, but you learned. So this is, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, and you have that willingness to learn, you know, and, and, you know, you can't dismiss the fact you have to surround yourself with good people too. Yep. Right. And, and I didn't do this alone by no means. I, I couldn't have told you what an accelerometer or potentiometer was three years ago. <laughs> My engineers have put up with me and just so many ways I could never even explain. We, we speak different languages. We can get on the same page and we can create a product that's, you know, we're both proud of. And, and that's been pretty cool. And, Keep forging forward, right? Love it. How, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Get this device moving. Start with your any contact yeah. information, whether it's oh, sure. on LinkedIn or what have you. Yeah, I have, I'm on LinkedIn through uh, my name, Dawn Golick, and uh, they can contact me at Widener. I'm sure you can go on the website and get my email from the website at Widener. Yep. Um, I also have uh, Dawn at mobilator.com is, yep. um, is my email for the device. So I'm, I'm happy to entertain any questions, any clinicians that want to see a model or, you know, want to play with it for a little bit. Happy to get it to you. Cool. I, Dawn is probably the most approachable person. I feel like I've sent you how many emails introducing you to somebody who's interested in certain research. And I'm like, Oh God, I hope Dawn doesn't, you know, text me like, come on, 
jerk. I'm like, I'm not busy. I don't have enough on my plate, but every time you're like, sure, I'm happy to help. So, you know, it's super approachable. I would encourage uh, listeners uh, and viewers to, to really reach out to you on LinkedIn. You're posting things all the time about, you know, updates on, on the product. So uh, this, this has been great. Uh, is there anything I'm missing? I think that's everything. We got your contact information, uh, how to get to the device. So I think, yeah. I think thanks for, thanks for coming on, Don. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a fun time. I always, oh. always enjoy spending time with you. God bless you. You're such a bad liar. Uh, <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> all right. That's, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It would mean so much to me if you could leave us a five-star review so more listeners like you could get this important information. See you next time. You are now listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast, where the worlds of sports medicine and performance collide. My name is Mike Quintins. I'm a physical therapist with an entrepreneurial mindset that specializes in treating orthopedic and sports injuries. I'm bringing on the brightest and sharpest in the field of sports medicine to share their best practices and explore the gap where medicine meets performance.